Well, good morning, everyone. Why don't you open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament, to Haggai chapter 2. And as uh, Haggai 2, if you don't have a Bible to use, you should find one in one of the chair racks around you that you can use. As Dave mentioned, we just got back from uh, India and the Middle East, and it was a good trip. It was a hard trip. We saw a lot. Um, But it was really cool because last Sunday we were sitting in a a church, uh, Kolkata Christian uh, Community Church uh, in downtown Kolkata, India, worshiping with... with, uh, uh, Indian believers and singing songs in Bengali and and it was really cool, but it's good to be home. I got to tell you, at one point we went to uh, uh, just a quick story. We went to the Sundarban Islands, which is on the east coast of uh, uh, northern India, and it was a long journey to get there. And those of you who know me know I'm neurotic about travel, and uh, it was one one thing to get me to India, and then we had to go by truck several hours. Then by boat over an hour, then by cart that was driven by a guy pedaling, and then by foot for 30 minutes to get to where we needed to be, where pastors and leaders are planting churches in these, in the Sonderbahn Islands. And, uh, we were there and we had these meetings and, uh, all of a sudden like this monsoon comes in and it is pouring rain. And I do not kid you, I was standing there thinking, I'm never going to get home from here. Uh, but, uh, but we did. It was a good trip, but I am really glad to be back. So I have a little bit of jet lag. Uh, what you're about to hear was edited uh, in a, an airport somewhere in the Middle East. I can't remember where we were. Uh, so uh, hopefully this makes some sense, and I can make some sense in my fogginess, so a little bit of jet lag. But um, uh, well, let's give it a shot. Uh, if you're a guest with us, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series called From Ruin to Restoration. Uh, it's an in-depth study of this Old Testament book that records uh, some very specific events that um, took place in the life of ancient Israel. Let me just do a quick historical recap for you. Uh, in 538 BC, after 48 years of being in exile in Babylon, 50,000 Israelites returned to Jerusalem with a call from God to rebuild his temple that had been destroyed. Uh, that was their mission. And upon arrival uh, in Jerusalem, they immediately set out to accomplish the mission, but soon after they abandon it and they begin focusing their time, their attention, their energy, and their financial resources on private matters. And gradually their spiritual passion just fizzled out altogether. And for 15 years, they did nothing for the temple, nothing. And so what began as this, for the people as this great spiritual adventure with God ended up in nothing more than a self a centered existence. And so God raises up this prophet Haggai to deliver four messages to the people over a four-month period of time. Uh, the first came on August 29th, 520 BC. And God, God uh, essentially rebukes the people for their disobedience, for their rationalizations, for their excuses on why they're not engaged in the mission, and he calls them to repent and to refocus their attention on him and on the rebuilding of his house. And the Israelites respond well. With humility, they regained their reverence for God and in obedience reengaged with the mission. And God was honored by that and he said, I am with you. I am with you. But as we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 2, after just a month of work, the people began to fear failure. And they were a bit rattled by the uncertainties of the future. And so on October 17th, 520 BC, God sent a second message through the prophet in which he urges his people to be strong and to, you know, with courage and faith, keep building, you know, stay on mission. And again, God says, I am with you and I have a glorious future plan for you. And that brings us up to chapter two, verse 10. 
Uh, After two more months of work on the temple, a third message gets delivered by Haggai. Why? Because apparently um, the Israelites were again feeling uh, discouraged and they were were thinking about giving up, uh, about abandoning the mission once again. Why? Well, keep in mind, there was a drought in the land. Food, water, um, resources were scarce. Uh, In fact, in his first message, God told the people that it was because of their self-absorbed disobedience that he sent the drought in order to, to wake them up and get their attention. And so now that the people were obeying God and they were back on mission, they kind of expected um, all of their problems to just kind of melt away. They expected everything to be all good again. And yet, here it was three months into it and nothing had changed. You know, they, they still faced the same issues, the same problems. There was drought and scarcity in the land and the temple was a long, long way from being finished, four years to be exact. And so slowly but surely, what the Israelites were beginning to realize was that faithful obedience is not easy. It is in theory, uh, just not so much in practice. I mean, most of us know that, right? I mean, um, many of us say that we want to obey God, but it's easier said than done. And, and frankly, you know, the Israelites, they were, you know, they were wondering whether this whole obedience thing was overrated. Was it really worth the effort? Because, because if there's no reward, if there's no immediate payoff, what's the point? I mean, sure, God promised to bless their future, but, you know, what good was a distant future, no matter how glorious it might be, if the day in which they lived was bad and hard and, and confusing, So basically they wanted to know why things weren't getting better faster. And and in many respects, the Israelites, they needed a reminder that that God isn't some kind of magical pump that we prime every morning with our good works and our obedient behavior just so he will immediately spill out all the good things that we want and desire the rest of the day. Yet it was this kind of entitled, you know, performance mentality that caused the people to think, you know, hey, God, we're, uh, hey, we're being obedient here. We're back on mission. We're doing what you're asking, ask of us. And, you know, I think, you know, we think we've kind of earned some good things. How about a little, how about a little payback here? You, you, you owe us. If we're honest, this kind of entitled thinking seeps into our minds every now and then, doesn't it? I mean, where our attitude is like, God, I'm, I'm trying to be obedient here. I'm trying to be good. So why, why the difficulties? Why did I lose my job? Why is my family struggling? Why are my relationships a mess? Why am I still sick? I'm trying for you. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to do. You owe me, God. You owe me. Well, here's the thing about obedience. Obedience should flow out of our love for God and the realization that he loves us and knows what is right and good and healthy and safe and best for us. In other words, obedience should be our natural response to God's grace. Or to put it another way, we don't obey because we expect or feel entitled to an immediate return on the investment. As if somehow our goodness forces God to respond in kind to whatever we want or desire. I mean, sure, it's true that God promises to reward obedience. But that reward comes in many different ways uh, at different times. It's all on God's timetable. And and here's the other thing about obedience. It's not just a one-time shot. It's not just a three-month burst of compliance. It's an ongoing process. 
As God's people, uh, we're called to be faithfully obedient. And the rest is up to God. And so with all that said, let's look at chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, and see how, how God, through this prophet Haggai, tries to communicate this truth to his people. Notice verse 10 says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius. Now again, our modern day equivalent would be, on the 18th day of December, 520 B.C., the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some, some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priests replied, it becomes defiled. Now, uh, unlike the previous messages, God starts this one off with two strange questions. Or at least, at least they're strange to us, right? I mean, I think the Israelites would have, would have definitely understood them because they, look, they had hundreds of rules and regulations that governed every aspect of their daily lives. And a majority of those rules had to do with identifying what was holy and what was not. Holy or uh, consecrated things were objects that were set apart. That's what the word holy really means. Objects that were set apart for God's special use, uh, usually related to temple worship. And since God himself is holy, he himself is set apart from all things. Only holy objects were supposed to be used in, in worship in the temple. But an unholy object wasn't necessarily in and of itself sinful. For example, a certain pot would be considered consecrated or holy if it was dedicated and if it was set apart for God's use. But an identical pot could be used in someone's home for cooking, uh, in which case it was considered just an ordinary common pot. Now, dead bodies were a whole different story. All dead bodies were, were considered unclean and defiled, and anyone who touched one would then become unclean and defiled. You may say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't get this. What's the point? So let me offer you my best Reiki version of the text, okay? It's like God, God asked the question. He says, let's say a guy is carrying some, some sacrificial meat that was consecrated. It was set apart uh, for specific, specific use in the temple. If that meat happens to touch some bread or wine or olive oil or any, any food, would that food then uh, also become set apart or holy as well? And the religious expert says, the, the, the experts say, well, of course not. Why? Because holiness is an isolated virtue. It cannot be transferred. But according to the Mosaic law, that wasn't the case when it came to ritual defilement or uncleanliness. So with a second question God asks, okay, well, let's say if a person is unclean or defiled because they've, ha- they've had contact with a corpse, and then that person touches any object or food, do those things become unclean due to the person's uncleanliness? And the priests say, yes, the the object or the food would then be unclean. Okay, you guys tracking now? I wasn't either, so don't feel bad. It took me me a while to figure this one out, but here's the long and short of it. God asks these questions that the Israelites would have understood. He asks these questions to point out that moral cleanliness cannot be transmitted but moral uncleanliness can. You say, well, what did that have to do with the Israelites and their circumstances? And it had a lot to do with it because God was essentially addressing what we might call the disease of disobedience. 
Try and think of it this way. I'll give you my best modern-day equivalent. One of the things that I fear most in life is getting the stomach flu. I mean, I am petrified of that thing. You know, in fact, I am so suggestible. If I talk to somebody on, the cell, on a cell phone who has the stomach flu, I'm convinced that I have now contracted the stomach flu and start feeling sick. I mean, really neurotic about it. And, um, because if you've ever had the stomach flu, you know it's nasty business, right? It's not something anybody wants. And so if I get the stomach flu, the last thing that I would ever do is go up to my wife Margie and give her a kiss. Because one, she'd kill me. And then, then two, you know... <laughs> Two, my kiss would make her sick because that, that stuff is easily transmitted. But, but what if Margie was sick with the flu and, and me being the loving, you know, compassionate, caring, giving guy that I am, you know, went up to her and gave her, a, you know, just a, a comfort kiss. Would my kiss transmit my health to her? No. Why? Because a healthy person can't transmit his or her health to a sick person. But a sick person can transmit disease to the healthy, see? And so in language the Israelites, ancient Israelites would have understood, God, is, God illustrates the pervasive power of sin and disobedience, which can spread like a contagious disease among God's people, rendering them spiritually sick and ineffective, i.e., rebellion and sin uh, is catchy. It's catchy. So in verse 14, God says, so it is with his people and the nation in my sight. Whatever they do, whatever they offer there is defiled. And here's the application, you see, to the two strange questions, with the key word used being whatever. Whatever. Understand, when a person's heart is not right with God, then whatever they do, whatever they do, no matter how good or religious, it's tainted. And for the Israelites, their disobedience made everything they touched unclean and unprofitable. Even their attempts at sacrificial worship was unacceptable. Because, you see, God wanted, he wanted more from his people than just a rebuilt temple, an empty religion. He, he wanted them. He wanted, he wanted their hearts. He wanted their, their love, their loyalty, their lives. He wanted full, authentic devotion. The last thing that God was interested in, um, you know, was a temple filled with cold, callous hearts. He didn't want costly sacrifices unless they were accompanied by a living sacrifice of the people. So here, here's my Ray K summary of this. You cannot fool God. You cannot fool God. He is not impressed by religious ritual or good works, unless, of course, if they flow out of genuine faith and humility and love for him. And that was, that was true for the ancient Israelites, and it's true for us today. And so God offered his people a reminder of the past. In verse 15, he says, Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. In other words, God says, It's December. He says, think back to the days before you started rebuilding in September. Think about how, things, how bad things were before that. When you came for 20 measures of grain and there were only 10, you couldn't get what you needed. When you came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures of wine and there were only 20 and you, you couldn't get all that you needed. God says, think how I sent blight and wind and mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me. You ignored me for 15 years. 
And you know, for me, it's this last statement that I, I think says it all. He says, you did not return to me. That's all that God ever really wanted. The love and undivided devotion of his people. But as we learn in chapter one, the Israelites had pushed God uh, from the center of their lives to the periphery of their lives and became preoccupied, preoccupied with their own, their own self-interests. And they just started making all these excuses for ne- neglecting both God and the mission he called them to. And unfortunately, you know, it took, it took sending drought and scarcity on the land for God to, to finally wake them up and recapture their attention. And so here God says to the people, hey, remember how it was before you repented and re-engaged with me and the mission I gave you. You don't want to go back there, do you? And I'm sure no one did. But here was the Israelites' conundrum. It had been three months of faith, focus, obedience, and sacrifice. 90 days on mission. 90 days working on the temple. But food and water and clothing remained scarce. And God himself acknowledges it. He says in verse 17, from this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. He says, is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. In other words, the drought of the previous year had so negatively affected the harvest of produce that the people's barns and storage bins were nearly empty of what little they did have. And at this point, there was no more seed left because the seed that they had, they put into the ground. There were no more grapes, no more figs, no more olives, no more pomegranates. Things were still scarce. But God was about to bestow his blessing on the people. However, before we look at that, let's consider the delay. Why the delay? You know, what was taking so long for God's blessing to come? That's what the Israelites were wondering. It's what they wanted to know. Because here they had been obedient for 90 days. So, you know, what's the holdup? And to me, the answer is simple. So many times in the past, the Israelites had vowed obedience and loyalty to God, yet often didn't follow through because their faith just wasn't genuine. And you can only fake it so long with God. And so why did, why did he delay his blessing? He delayed it to test the, 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 the seriousness of the people. Because here's the thing, genuine faith is demonstrated through persistent obedience. God wasn't, God wasn't, content with lip service. He allowed some time to pass to see if the people were, were serious, if they truly committed to him and to the mission he gave them. You know, over the years, I've met a lot of people in the context of the church who, who consider themselves Christian, and they, they profess a faith in Jesus, but often complain that God doesn't, God doesn't seem to be doing anything significant in their life, in their life, not nothing really good. You know, they, they don't sense any kind of quote-unquote blessing as they, you know, struggle with work or as they struggle with uh, difficult relationships or family problems or whatever it might be. And, and with, with many of these folks, not all of them, but with many of them, they claim faith, yet the truth be told, live a life inconsistent with what God says is right and good and healthy and safe and best for us. Um, in theory, they have faith. In theory, they love God. 
But in all practicality, they ignore them in their daily lives. And he, look, here's the reality. Faith. Faith isn't measured simply by what you say. God measures its validity by what you do every day. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus asked a bunch of people who were following after him, he said, hey, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then you don't do what I ask you to do? You don't do what I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then you refuse to serve others as you yourself have been served by me? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then you don't forgive people as you yourself have been forgiven? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you have no compassion on those who who have need? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and refuse to give and remain greedy? And, and Look, why do you call me Lord, and not, you, don't, you, just, just, you just don't do what I ask you to do? Fair question. Later in the New Testament, when James writes Christians in the church, he explains it this way very succinctly. He says, look, faith, if not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not real. So understand, I say this with all, all respect, If you're living a life of consistent disobedience to what you know, what you know God says is right and good and healthy and safe and best for you to do, then it's possible that your faith isn't genuine. It's just theoretical. And therefore, you you have no promise of God's blessing, either presently or in the future. On the other hand, however, if your faith has you, you know, striving for obedience to God in all areas of your life, you know, you're responding to God's grace, you know that what he says is right and good, and you're, you're striving after it, yet there are moments when you feel as if somehow God has overlooked you, and you wonder, where is the blessing? Realize this, abundant blessing always follows persistent obedience. And that was the point of God's message to the Israelites. Check out the end of verse 19 and and the delivery of God's blessing. He says, from this day on, I will bless you. In fact, God says it twice, verse 18 and 19. From this day on, I will bless you. As if to press the idea to the Israelites, you know what? The past is the past. We can't change that. But we can change and we will change what goes on from now forward, from here forward. God says, I will bless you from this day forward. Now, I don't know how you feel about it, but for me, the word bless is one of, those, one of those biblical words that just drives me up the wall because we use it so much in the church. We throw it around a lot without really knowing what we're talking about. Bless this, bless that, bless the other thing. I was blessed, you were blessed, she was blessed, we're all blessed, we're blessed, right? You know, what does that mean? What does that word mean? Why do we use it? What, what, is, what is behind that word? Uh, so, just so you know, the Hebrew word that's used here in the text is the word barach. And the definition of the Hebrew word is this, barach, it's the act of God whereby he grants specific favor and benefits to his people. In the Old Testament, uh, such favor and benefits included the giving of power, success, prosperity, longevity, security. Uh, It included both temporal and spiritual well-being. And although these things are all part of the idea of blessing throughout scripture, blessing in the New Testament tends to be more particularly associated with spiritual benefits. But When we consider God's statement here in Haggai 2.19, we can see that his pronouncement of divine favor, Barach, affected the people in three specific ways. First, God's Barach, God's blessing, affected them in a present material sense. 
In response to their humble obedience, the nation's economic status was about to change. God's promise of blessing meant that the people would soon no longer go unsatisfied, but their needs would be met. The rain would come, the crops would grow, the harvest would be one of great abundance, and although they'd still have to wait a couple of months before the harvest, the people understood that God's blessing was a present reality because when God says he's going to do something, it's as good as done. God's blessing affected the people in a present spiritual sense. You know, for 15 years, God was ignored and his mission neglected. And so the people's relationship to God was one of, it was one of distance, you know, it was one of insecurity. But now their relationship takes on a new spiritual dynamic in demonstrating their reverence and their faith, their love, their commitment by way of persistent obedience. God expresses his, his pleasure, his love for them through this Barak, this blessing. In other words, Israel's spiritual relationship to God gets renewed. And that right renewed relationship was itself a part of God's blessing. And then finally, God's blessing affected the people not only in a present spiritual sense, but also in a future spiritual sense. See, the, the, the blessing wasn't just about their present state of material or spiritual well-being, but represented a future security. Because God had promised a coming Messiah who would establish a glorious and eternal kingdom through the people of Israel. And so the blessing or the favor, the benefits that God bestows on his people were of both a present material and spiritual nature as well as a futuristic nature. And you guys do realize, right, that as Christians we have the same promise of blessing, of Barak. Think about it. When it comes to present material benefits, Jesus says, Jesus says don't, don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Later in the New Testament, the, um, in a letter to the early church, the Apostle Paul encourages Christians to, to be incredibly generous with their, their money and their possessions. Why? He says, well, first, because God loves a cheerful giver. And two, because God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all, uh, all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In short, Jesus tells us, and Paul affirms, that we should not worry so much about, about our material well-being because God knows our needs and he promises to provide for us. That doesn't mean we're all going to be rich and have everything we want and desire in life. It does mean that God will take care of us. Sometimes we, you know, we lose sight of that reality, especially in America. Because of our cultural influences, we tend to interpret whether or not God is blessing us based on the size of our incomes or bank accounts or volume of possessions. But God's idea of blessing is about meeting our material needs, not necessarily satisfying our gratuitous wants and desires. In the same way, when we come to understand the love and grace of God found and experienced in Jesus, we place our faith in him, the seriousness of that faith gets expressed not just in what we say, but in what we do. The grace of God changes us from the, from the inside out, you see. And here's the deal. The more obedient we are to what God says is right and good and healthy and safe and best for us, and the more we engage with the mission that he's given us, the more we experience a deep sense of his good pleasure and his presence and his power and a deep sense of spiritual security. The Apostle Paul summarizes it this way to the church. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us 
in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. Here's my Reiki translation of that. Spiritual blessing, spiritual favor is a present reality for those who know and trust in Christ. And finally, as believers, we have the promise of blessing in a future sense as well. Jesus said the day will come when the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take the inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. The blessing, the benefit of life everlasting. one, One thing that this record of Haggai tells me about the Israelites is that is that they eventually figured out that it's impossible to fool God. You just can't do it. He knows, he's no, he knows if we're serious about faith in him or not. Humble obedience over time tells the story. It, it reveals the truth. And so today, maybe, maybe things in your life aren't going exactly the way you'd like them to go. And, 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 and it's confusing, and you're struggling, and you're asking questions, and I get that. But realize, as the people of Israel did, that life is complicated. It is complicated, and circumstances can at times be discouraging and confusing. And yet, as his people, God has called us to, to a great spiritual purpose, a great spiritual mission in our world, and he asks us to trust him. And to faithfully preserve, uh, persevere, even in the most difficult of times. And his pronouncement, his promise is this. I am with you. And I will bless you, both now and in the future. Let's pray. Our Father, I confess that there are times when I fall into the mentality of, of thinking that my obedience deserves payback. And I cop this attitude and I say, Lord, I, I'm trying my best here. How about a little help? How about a little payback? How about a little payoff? Aren't I earning something here? And I realize that that is such a warped understanding of obedience. We obey you, God, because you are God. You have created us. And as our creator, you know what is right and you know what is true and you know what is good and best and safe for us. And you call us to those things to protect us. You want to protect us from the wounds, the hurts, the brokenness that life can bring when we rebel against what you say is right. And so our obedience is in response to knowing that and knowing your love and your care and your grace. It's not about earning anything, for we deserve nothing. And I pray that even as the Israelites struggled to understand, uh, and uh, even as they, they wrestled through scarcity and, and um, uh, famine, that you promised that your barak, your blessing was coming. And uh, you have promised the same to all of us. And so in whatever circumstance we find ourselves this morning, whether it's in plenty or it's in want, whether it's um, in a, maybe even in a kind of a desert-type moment, may we place our faith in you and our hope in you, knowing that you love us and that you will care for us, that you are with us 
and will bless us both now and forever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? For being with us uh, this morning. And, and maybe, you know, like the Israelites, they found themselves in a confusing situation. Um, maybe that's true of you, and you just need someone to talk to you this morning. Something in life is you know, just not going right, or maybe you have questions about faith, whatever it might be, we have, some, we have some of our prayer team people down up front following the service. You can come and talk with them. They'll be happy to, to share with you or pray with you, whatever it is that uh, they might be able to do to help you. But uh, my, my hope is that in being, being with us week after week, you recognize that this idea of obedience, we don't obey God out of a sense of obligation or guilt uh, or fear. We obey God because we recognize that He's God and He knows what's right for us. He wants to protect us from things that hurt us and break us and ruin our relationships and ruin our lives. Uh, and when we rebel against those things, that's what sin is. And it hurts us. God wants to protect us from those things. But when we rebel, that brokenness separates us from God. It creates a distance with, with God that needs, to be, that needs to be healed. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to pay the penalty for our rebellion, our sin, and that through faith in him, by grace, we find a renewed relationship with God that will last forever. And we receive as his people, Barach, the blessing of God, both now and forever. And I hope, that, I hope you understand that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not about your works or your good efforts or your, your, your performance. It's about the grace of God, and it's about you embracing that grace in Jesus. So thanks for coming. Um, I hope you guys have a great week. And come back next Sunday as we continue on with uh, Haggai. And uh, I hope you're finding it helpful. I know that I am. Let me pray for you, okay? And now, Lord, I pray for your people as their church leaves the building, as we go back into our world. May we, may we live our lives in such a way um, that is honoring to you and, 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 and obedience, knowing that uh, what you, you, you call us to is for our own benefit and for our own health and well-being. And as we live those kind of lives, it gives us the opportunity um, to even more so experience your love and grace and goodness and to point people to you. For you have called us to the mission of building your church. May we never neglect you nor neglect that mission. May we be fully committed to it. Um, And so now may your hand of grace and peace and love rest on your people that we might sense that you are with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.